Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. Today, we are going all the way back to 1932 to look at The Sign of the Cross, produced and directed by the great Cecil B. DeMille and written by Voldemort Young and Sidney Buckman. Now, Sort of a cinematic confession here. I've never actually seen a Cecil B. DeMille movie. If you're not sure if you have or not, it comes down to really two films primarily. And I, and I was kind of surprised to see this. Those two films would be The Ten Commandments as well as The Greatest Show on Earth. And other than that, nobody would fault you for not having seen any of his other films. He's done a total of 70 films, but 50 of them possibly one or two more, are silent films. Gonna go ahead and hit you up with a description here from Letterboxd, though I did actually do a little bit of tweaking to make it a bit more expeditious. After burning Rome, Emperor Nero blames the Christians and decrees they are all to be caught and sent to the arena. Two older Christians are captured when Marcus, the highest military official in Rome, comes upon them and sees their stepdaughter, Mercia. He instantly falls in love with her and frees everyone, then pursues Mercia, which gets him into trouble with the Emperor for going easy on Christians, as well as with the Empress, who loves him and is jealous. Now, the first and most impressive aspect of this film would have to be its construction. So, when you see certain films from the early 30s, a lot of filmmakers were still sort of learning the cinematic language, and so you'll get, you know, some pretty awkward cuts, maybe things don't quite cut on action. That's not an issue that you're going to have with this movie. It actually feels and plays like a movie that would be made today, with the exception of maybe a couple scenes that don't quite adhere to that 30 degrees or feel a little bit awkward or jump cutty, but far and few between for a film from the early 30s. Even the camera tracks and the movements are incredibly smooth, smoother than a lot of films that would come you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later even. It's really pretty remarkable. And as far as that cinematography is concerned, it's serviceable in some places while being pretty exceptional in others. So the exteriors and a lot of the fights that they stage, particularly well shot, they actually kind of reminded me of Raging Bull, the way that they were captured, you know, really clear but grainy black and white stock really effective. And they've also got some really great shots. There are some wonderful, wonderful shots. There's a shot towards the end where it shows a decree on a wall, right? Like a piece of paper with writing on it. And the camera then booms down from that decree to a water grate on the street, pushes in through the water grate to reveal that that's actually pouring into a jail or a sort of holding area for these religious criminals. And then the camera continues to boom down into like sort of a wide shot that's stationed on the very ground. And there's dozens of people in this location. And yeah, even now as I think about it and describe it, I'm not 100% sure how they pulled it off, but very, very wonderful. The photographer is a gentleman by the name of Carl Struss, and he really did a lot of work in silent film. His most noticeable was probably F.W. Murnau's Sunrise in 1927, which he actually won an Academy Award for. But this is a guy that also shot Gone with the Wind 12 years later in 1939. And then almost 20 years after that, the original The Fly. Help me! Help me! And that was actually the last film before his death. So, yeah, this guy had a very long and very illustrious career. 
Now, as is the case with a lot of these earlier films, you're kind of here for the acting, right? And it's definitely theatrical, sort of that over-the-top, you know, we're used to being on stage where we have to project these emotions to people who are very far away, so we don't have a lot of room for subtlety. Even down to the way that Marcus sort of walks around with this constant, like, his fists on his waist as he sort of walks around like a superhero. But I kind of dig it, right? I think it's fun. You could describe it as campy, and I wouldn't argue with you, but I think it works for these types of productions. It's just a... You know, these actors were well-versed in that style, and so I think they can pull it off. Or maybe if a modern actor tried to do that style, it would just come across as boorish or something, you know? Now, Frederick March and Alyssa Landy play our protagonist and leading lady, respectively. But I was most entranced by Charles Lawton as Caesar Nero, who brings a lot of hedonism bot energy, which all my Futurama fans will recognize. How wonderfully decadent. And just as I was beginning to lose interest. As well as the Empress, played by Claudette Colbert. And she has a presence. She's absolutely gorgeous. She apparently is best known for her work in It Happened One Night, and she actually won the Academy Award for Best Actress in 1934, which was just two years after she made this film. The movie is also notable for being one of the higher-profile pre-code films. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, there's basically a five-year period from when talkies first came out in 1929 to when the, quote, Hayes Code was established in 1934. And this was basically a motion picture production code of morals and standards, right? So it agreed that they wouldn't show any, you know, nudity and a lot of these certain themes wouldn't be expressed. It was very, very strict, even down to the fact that, like, they couldn't have anti-heroes as protagonists. That was something that had to come later as people fought for it. So this film definitely leans into a lot of its pre-code freedom, let's call it. It's interesting because at the end of the day, this is a film that kind of promotes Christianity and the chasteness and virtue associated with that. However, it's also a pretty horny movie. It's also not afraid to lean into these very sort of salacious and sensational acts and visuals to sell its message and to, I'm sure, fill the seats, right? So there's a lot of near nudity, especially with the Claudette Colbert character, the Empress and the, you know, there's kind of a lot of background nudity, not a lot of background nudity, but there is some background nudity in certain scenes. There is a lot of animal use and I'm sure animal misuse. And, you know, that's not something that I, I condone, but it is interesting to actually see like many lions, you know, actual lions running through and seeing actual extras being picked up by elephants and like almost having their heads smashed on by actual elephant foots. Like, I'm sure it was dangerous as hell. And and there may have even been extras killed that are just, you know, buried at the bottom of some lake right now. But it is interesting to see on film for what it's worth. You don't really see that anymore. That's for sure. But a lot of the issues that the Hayes Code addressed had to do with sort of sexual innuendo, you know. Outright nudity still wasn't sort of accepted on a public level, so they're not going to do that in what would be, you know, quote-unquote family films, right? But there is a lot of suggestion. In particular, in this movie, there's a dance sequence featuring an actress by the name of Joyzel Joyner, and it's just very overt in its lesbian suggestions. And we also have another scene where there's the mistress, or not the mistress, the empress, taking a milk bath. Funny story about that scene. 
the legend went that it was actual cow's milk. It wasn't. It was actually evaporated milk, which I guess at the end of the day would become cow's milk once you add the water and everything. But it took them a number of days to shoot that scene. And after a few days, the milk started to turn and get sour and smell really bad. And when you watch it, it's a very sexy scene. And so Claudette had to, you know, really try to sell this sexiness despite the fact that rotting milk, she's literally bathing in rotting milk, right? So she definitely pulled it off, though. Props to her. Where the film lacks is in being anything more than just a simple entertaining diversion. It does have some light things to say about Christianity, and I don't think it really does a good job of that just because of the way that the sensationalism sort of works against that messaging. But at the end of the day, it's a well-made film that is entertaining. I did enjoy the acting. I enjoyed the cinematography. I enjoyed the general story. And, you know, it may not have the heights of entertainment and action and all of this that today's films would have. But again, for a film that's, you know, 90 years old or what have you, a very, very solidly constructed film that I actually enjoyed much more than I expected to. We're going to go ahead and put a formal rating on it. I'm not even going to give you the adjectives today. We're just going to do a rating, formal rating of three and three quarters out of five stars because I do want to mention as well that this film isn't really available on any of the streaming sites, but it is available at a site called Internet Archive. And they're doing a lot of good work. They have a lot of public domain work and other works that people will upload using really high quality streams. So unlike a lot of movies that get uploaded to YouTube or elsewhere, these are like high quality files that you can find on Internet Archive. The link is in the description of whatever you're listening to right now. Or you can also go to the website, esotericacinema.com. We will have a link for you to check out the film there. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next time on Esoterica Cinema.